Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing a very special panel discussion that was recently hosted by the Film Society and Film Quarterly. The discussion tackled the urgent topic of film and media in times of fascism, dictatorship, and moments of stress. Moderated by critic and Film Quarterly editor B. Ruby Rich, the conversation featured reports on Italy, Argentina, Paraguay, Portugal, the PRC, and the United States itself past, present, and future. Panelists reported from the new Action Group Network, a nationwide network organizing to move the country progressively forward in the wake of a divisive election, discuss representations of race in a time of increased risk, and discuss strategies of resistance to media repression. The evening featured a diverse panel of filmmakers and scholars who were brought up in two sections. Similarly, we will split up this extensive episode into two parts. Detailed information about the panelists will be included in the show notes for this episode. Just a small disclaimer that the sound quality of this recording isn't up to our usual standards. You'll notice some of the speakers sound a little distorted. In spite of this, we thought it important to share this insightful and urgent discussion. Let's go now to part one of our panel, Film and Media in a Time of Repression. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit that for nearly 50 years has served as New York's premier film organization, with screenings every day of the year at the Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center and the Walter Reed Theater. Visit today and see Raoul Peck's Academy Award nominee for Best Documentary Feature, I Am Not Your Negro, which provides an incisive look at race in America crafted through the words of James Baldwin. For showtimes and tickets, visit filmlink.org. Thanks so much. Thank you all so much for coming out here in support of this crazy idea and crazy event. Um, And my biggest thanks, of course, to these panelists, who uh, most of whom I do not know and I'm only meeting tonight, and who really responded to the urgency of this moment and the chance to speak with this group uh, gathered here today and for all of us to try to figure out together um, where to look in order to figure out what to do next. And um, we're, I'm bringing the panelists up in two batches. This is the first half of the eight panelists that we have here assembled. And you should have a program that uh, lists everyone. Um, if you don't, they're floating around. There's some over there. Uh, there are also issues of Film Quarterly over there. If you don't have one, pick one up on the way out just so you can see uh, what sort of universe you're part of. Um, this is billed as an urgent conversation about histories and futures of film, of television, um, web media, representational strategies. What have people done in the past? What are people doing right now? And what on earth are we supposed to do now in the future going forward? And the idea is to think of this as a kind of laboratory of ideas, suggestions, clues. Um, We have here people from many different arenas whose research uh, is in many different directions. And um, what we're going to do tonight is speak at very short length. Everyone is speaking for 10 minutes only. Um, First, these four. Next, our other four panelists who are hiding over there in the wings, uh, waiting their turn. Uh, And then everyone will be up here um, together uh, to begin a dialogue with each other and with you. 
So um, uh, I don't want to use up too much time with introductions. Uh, Regina Longo, the associate editor of Film Quarterly, who's over there on the side, has put together a PowerPoint with all of the bios. So I'm not going to introduce anyone at great length, merely to let you know who is who before they speak. And it should be no surprise that the person that I've asked to speak first um, is uh, Walter Bernstein, uh, the man who has lived through earlier epics and lived to tell the tale, earlier eras of repression, uh, survived the blacklist, wrote about it, wrote a screenplay about it, The Front, um, and uh, is going to tell us a few things about what went on then, what could go on now, and uh, what he thinks you should be concerned with or um, paying attention to. Okay? Um, I think we have a traveling mic. Is that true? No, right here. Very good. Walter, it's all yours. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> the only thing I can talk about with any kind of authority is survival. Uh, really. Uh, that's what it was all about primarily. Uh, what were the stratagems you used for survival? And survival was, the necessity for surviving was, was very real because the oppression was very real. I mean, this was a period in which uh, <clears throat> uh, the enemy, in this case, was communism. Uh, the enemy was anybody on the left, basically. We were, a we were, we are a country in, in which every once in a while we feel the need or, <clears throat> or get the need for a, uh, an external enemy, in which case we throw civil liberties out the window and go chasing afterwards. Today it's terrorism, it's Muslims. Uh, in my day, it, uh, it was communism. And if you were suspected in any kind of way of uh, not even communist sympathies, but uh, in any kind of leftist activity, uh, you were blacklisted. It was as simple as that, basically. You know, if you joined any kind of organization or your name was on any petition, uh, let alone if you had written or belong to organizations <clears throat> that were considered uh, on the left, you were, you were blacklisted. Uh, and if you wanted to get out of it, if you wanted to clear yourself, you had to name names. That also was very simple. It didn't matter if you went and did a mea culpa and said, oh, no, I hate communism. They're all very nasty people. And uh, uh, I don't want anything to do with them. That was all well and good, but still you had to name names. Uh, and if you didn't, you were blacklisted. Uh, in my case, that lasted about 10 years. Uh, with frequent visits from the FBI, uh, who would go through my garbage, actually, looking for what, uh, any incriminating uh, yogurts or something. <laughs> Uh, uh, and they would visit two or three times a month, very polite. 
you know, we'd like to talk to you. Well, I have nothing to say to you. Thank you very much. But the fear was there because they always knew where you were. They would stop me coming out of the subway. They would stop me getting on a bus, getting home, coming out of a movie theater. Uh, always very polite and always very scary. Uh, but I'm here. Uh, I survived that, uh, that period. And one of the reasons, maybe the main reason uh, that I did was that we, the blacklisted people, for the, for the most part, came together. Uh, there was a generosity among them that perhaps came out of the fact that we were all in the same boat. But whatever it was, uh, we met, we helped each other. We learned, if any of us had any money, we would lend it if it were necessary. And I think that in today's period also, uh, it's, it's mandatory, really, uh, to find groups to be together. We laughed a lot, strangely. You know, I always felt it was kind of the, the hilarity of doom. Uh, but uh, uh, it was a saving thing in a, in a period of, of when people lost their job, they were ostracized, uh, you would feel somebody that you knew was coming toward you in the street for a moment or more, you feel, were they going to stop and say hello? Were they going to cross the street to avoid you, as m many people did? Uh, it was a bad, bad period, really. We haven't come to that yet. It's down the road somewhere, I think. Uh, and if you were able to work, the writers uh, were much luckier than, say, the directors or the actors. They had to show their face. Uh, and we didn't. We could get people to represent us. We could get fronts. And so my survival depended on that to a great extent. But we helped each other. And I, you know, I can't stress that uh, too much, the need to, the need to come together. Uh, and also the need to collect victories, as many as you can, as small as you can, if necessary. It doesn't matter the size. But you have to show another face really. Uh, and when I say we laughed, we laughed a lot. We had parties. Uh, we behaved like ordinary people. Uh, and that's important. It, it is so easy. It is so easy to get, dis to get discouraged and to realize that at the moment you don't have much power, if any. Really, they have the power. And you have to acknowledge that, you have to deal with that, 
You have to realize what your true position is and not kid yourself. Uh, you cannot confuse words with actions, really. It's the action that counts. It's the doing of whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be big. It can be very small. But if it's there, you'll survive. And you'll survive well. Walter, why do you think they went after um, Hollywood or the film industry? Why do you think they went after writers? Did they really think that screenwriting was that dangerous and should people hear hope it could be dangerous again? <laughs> no. No, I, they, they went after the entertainment industry uh, to get their name in the papers. That was the, the reason. We were very small fry as far as, they weren't after us, they were after the left wing of the labor movement. Uh, they were after uh, the State Department. Those were the big things that they were after. We were just a, you know, if you could get in, uh, in the newspapers with the, the names of stars or something like that, it gave them, it gave them publicity. Uh, and they didn't go after writers any more than they went after actors and directors. Uh, and uh, actually, the producers didn't didn't want a blacklist. They wanted a labor pool that was as big as they could possibly make it. Uh, and they tried very hard at the beginning to to keep the I know the writers certainly the uh, the producers the executives like Daryl Zanuck for example. Uh, they, you know, they didn't care if anyone was a communist or anything else as long as they did the job for them. Uh, my first job in Hollywood many years ago, uh, I was in the office of the director I was working for and uh, a man came, we were moving furniture for some reason and a uh, man came to the door <coughs> and it was Harry Cohn who was there man who ran and owned the studio, really. Uh, you know, and he uh, watched us what we were doing and he said to the director, you know, is, it, is this one of your commie writers from New York? You know, and the director said yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, Cohn just nodded, went ahead with what he was doing. He didn't care, you know. If I didn't do the work or he didn't like the work or he didn't like me for how I looked, uh, that was what, uh, but it, they were forced, they were forced by the government, they were forced by uh, right-wing organizations, picketing the theaters, uh, but uh, they didn't care much about us except as, pub as publicity, basically. Thanks, thanks Walter. I'm going to change gears. I'm going to ask, uh, we're going to hear now from Ruth Ben-Ghiat, uh, who's been studying Italian fascism and cinema, um, going back to Mussolini, back to Berlusconi, and might have a few things uh, to say of uh, immediate relevance right now. Um, Ruth? Thank you. Uh, is this, this is on? Yes. Great. Is it, can you hear? Is it on? Yeah. Great. So, yeah, and I'm, um, uh, my thoughts are less about 
right now how to resist than um, how to help us understand what is standing in front of us because that is the first step to being able to do something to understand what you are dealing with and there is still a lot of denial um, and failure to comprehend. Um, so, and I'm speaking as a scholar of fascism, but also as someone who covered the presidential election for CNN.com for the last 18 months, specializing in Donald Trump. And these things are intertwined. So th the first time I saw Donald Trump, uh, not in person, but I saw him at a rally, uh, saw him performing as a politician, my heart sank and I was filled with dread um, because it was deeply familiar to me. And so I want to just touch on a few things that were familiar to me. Um, the chief one was the way he started from the very beginning cultivating a kind of bond with his um, followers that was based on his person and not on a party and not on allegiance to principles. He doesn't give a wit about the GOP, is my humble opinion. And he wants this kind of uh, submission to his person quite beyond any party and beyond any particular principle. And this is a kind of emotional bond that he forges, and it's un unfortunate he's been so successful, and he has his loyalty oath and his salute. He has these kind of political theater rituals. Because from what I've learned studying for many years, once these bonds are formed, it's very hard for them to be broken. Um, and it took a war for Mussolini, it took the uh, Eurozone crisis for Berlusconi, something kind of big has to happen. Um, so another thing is how these people use visual culture, how they use images. And, and Trump is incredibly you know, savvy at uh, knowing how words and images interact. And um, so he read the market well. He concocted a political project that was founded on a politics of resentment to Obama, to foreigners. Um, and he, he began to retweet uh, racist images. And the first time I saw this kind of very, they're very, they were from the right wing and they were very complicated, you know, assemblages of word and text. Uh, and he started retweeting these things, and the first time I saw one, I stopped dead in my tracks, and I rushed, I ran through Washington Square Park home to write an op-ed because I realized that this was very dangerous, because it was very compelling what it was doing for, for the viewer. So, as you well know, he, he started, you know, circulating kind of messages against African Americans, Hispanics, um, uh, circulating very powerful anti-Semitic symbols. And also, he's a visual guy. And so even his speeches are full of these very compelling and resonant images like walls and swamps and lawless inner cities. And, and these, these are very, um, these, these take hold of people. And so it's not surprising that these same images have been used by dictators in the past. And so Mussolini, one of his main slogans was drain the swamps. Mm -hmm. And my first book on fascism, the whole, the, basically the whole argument of my first book, which was written many years ago, was um, about this kind of 
concept of reclamation, it was called bonifica in Italian, that you were going to drain the swamps, first physical swamps, and then get rid of all the undesirables and extend it to Jews and you know, Slavs and everyone else. So, so these things recur, and there are a lot of continuities. Um, Regina, can you put up the image of the, the guy? Is okay, good. So the other area um, is what I'm calling an aesthetics of menace. And its anchor is the body of the leader and who dominates any space or any frame that he's in. And, and this is very important, and carries in him the potential for violence. That's where the menace comes in. So this is uh, not Mussolini, but this is Fosco Giacchetti, who was kind of one of the very most popular film actors in fascist Italy, and he specialized in these military and empire films. And the way he was holding his hands uh, this was Mussolini's favorite position, and it was replicated through all his kind of proxies throughout um, you know, the intermediate circuits of fascism. And so this, from this body, these kinds of bodies emanate a very intimidating speech. They're aggressive, right? And so um, you know, Trump is the styling himself in this manner. So one of the watersheds of the campaign um, was when Trump said, and he even gave a helpful little um, you know, gesture, that he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot people, and no one, he wouldn't lose any followers. And, and this was a form of testing that these guys do, and he was testing the political class more than even the populace to see what they were going to do and what their tolerance was for violence. So, but the, the anchor of this aesthetics of menace is, the, is this kind of body. And this body multiplies. So these, these guys like to um, you know, replicate themselves. And so you have proxies, you have surrogates. And so that's why I'm not showing Mussolini, I'm showing one of his many stand-ins across the media. And so you can wake up one day and find that you have an administration that is full of tough men. Uh, we have an, a record number of generals who he would like to appoint. And among the civilians, there's an unusually high number of uh, men who have been accused of domestic violence or sexual assault. And I had to revise my number up one because and, and it, I think it's been confirmed. I heard today um, he would like to nominate Roger Isles of Fox News for uh, the position of Undersecretary of Public Diplomacy, which I, <laughs> I thought this was from The Onion, but uh, alas, it is not. So Regina, can you bring up the, the second image of the hovering, the, the, the other one, the one that you so ably, can you do the, Yes, I'd like the other one. Yeah. Okay, so, so this, this kind of um, provocation and intimidation, uh, this is the, from the, the presidential debate that left so many men and women feeling sick to their stomach. And so you see he's composed, but it's kind of the calm before the storm. And it's very important that we knew by then about some of his physical and other uh, alleged, you know, uh, aggressions to women, and the key thing is that he knew that we knew, right? So we were already on the defensive as we watched Clinton, and, and we, we could feel that, that he was in this mode, and this is how the aesthetic of menace operates, that he knows that we know, and so they, in one man way, they like to hide what they've done, but they also don't mind if it comes out if they're in a position to start you know, asserting themselves and intimidating, in this case, an entire country. 
And so you can go to the last slide. And so Trump also knows that we'll be encouraged to forget. And so here we have him uh, at the um, triumphant, at the convention, emerging from the fog. He is a man with no past. He is a mere silhouette upon which we can project our fantasies. And so this is Trump telling us that if he wins, we will have to cleanse all knowledge of his swampy past, all of his swamps, right? And this happens, uh, this was familiar to me from my study of fascist visual culture because the male leads of fascist films and one of the plot lines is that you have to be reclaimed, you have to be rehabilitated. So a lot of them have blackouts. They faint, which seems odd in this kind of tough guy. But so they cleanse themselves and then they can be the perfect fascist subject. So it's a memory loss. Or they have a battle scene and then the screen is flooded with sand or with fog. So the reader, the, the viewer is supposed to kind of realize that the violence is left and the glamour remains. And so we can go back to the, these kind of men and the spectacle of them. So if we're not careful, you know, this fog will come to cloud our own minds. There'll be a lot of pressure to forget the sexual assault, to forget um, the certain parts of the racism, to forget all kinds of things. And then we can enter into this quietude and passivity, which is what these rulers want. So I think our task is to keep our minds clear and our eyes open and, and keep that fog at bay at, and, and keep present the image bank that they themselves provide to us. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much um, for that, um, Ruth. Um, I'm going I'm just moving quickly through this so that we can make the most use of our time here. Uh, Susana de Sousa Diaz has come, has flown in from Lisbon to talk with us and who's been working uh, throughout her career on the archives from the Salazar dictatorship and um, is going to share some of her knowledge and her advice with us. Thank you. Well, um, I would like to, to, to start by explaining very briefly what my work is, is about and, of course, its connections to the current moments we are living. Uh, the main theme of my work is the Portuguese dictatorship. It's a very special dictatorship because in the context of the 20th century, because it was the longest one in Western Europe, it lasted for 48 years, and it came to an end through a revolution, a wonderful revolution, Carnation Revolution, in 1974. And I started to work on this subject, firstly, because over the last two decades, I had been assisting a kind of oblivion, oblivion regarding this period, an oblivion that obfuscates the violence against the people, the violence of daily life, the violence in the former colonies, but also obfuscates what was the fight of the people against the, the regime. And even more problematic was that um, while the years went passing by, the policies and actions of the dictator and of the regime had simply been whitewashed. And this was done not only by practical actions, but also uh, done by historical and historical revisionism uh, regarding this period. So as a result of the generalized lack of memory and the con con constant attempts to whitewash the past, people do forget that many of the rights of the working population, of the working people, had been obtained due to 
active facts during the dictatorship, like the working of eight hours per day. And at the same time, this lack of memory is fooled by the banalization of the dictatorship through the media. Uh, so we can see a kind of a, of a farce, um, a kind of theatralization of memory and uh, the past as something light for easy consumption. So my work uh, doesn't try, try to go to the past trying to find some truth in it. On the contrary, it tries to see how the past arrives to the present by paying attention to the movements and counter-movements of images and, and sounds. So my idea is to work about the present, searching in the blanks, the lacunia, the non-sayings, and brushing history against the grain, like Walter Benjamin says in this thesis of history. And so I, I brought two images. I'm going to skip the, the first one. Um, so the first one, it's a kind of anodinous images that I'm working with. The second one is um, a kind of opposite ima image from the first one. It's an image of resistance. And it's taken from my film 48, a film made with mugshots and voice over by former political prisoners. It's a film that deals with oppression and torture, themes that are absolutely present in our times. If torture returns uh, with the war of Iraq, it became now very relevant because uh, of the Donald Trump's treat to bring it back again. Um, Yervan Giannikian and Angela Ricciolucchi, two Italian uh, filmmakers, have a sentence in one of his films, Pays Barbare, from 2013, that I really want to bring for this discussion. They say that every era has its, its fascism. And this sentence can lead us to the paradox of the present, the paradoxes of the current times. All of us are consuming day by day an enormous amount of information. But at the same time, I think we experience a kind of deficit of memory, at last of a certain type of memory. And we have so many images from the past, so many sounds, but at the same time, everything seems to blur in the, in the kind of presence. It's, uh, there is a title, there is a film of Alexander Kluge, The Assault of the Present on the Rest of Time. And I think we are living in a kind of continuous presence. And I think in this context, we have to think about the uses of history and memory. And nowadays, we are assisting to a conflict regarding the representations of the recent past. And these are essential representations to legitimize the politics and ideologies of the present. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the defeat of the socialism, and after the, the historical victory of the global, globalized capitalism, a new conservative neoliberal order has been spreading violently around the globe. And suddenly, there was a, an ideological revision of history that promotes a criminalization of socialism and a criminalization of the whole idea of revolution. Uh, at the same time, during the, 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 the last years, we assisted to the almost disappearance of the word fascism. Now it's returning, 
And this is a, a very good thing, because we really need this concept to think of the present. So, uh, but at the same time that the word fascism was disappearing, okay, oh, fascism, oh, no, it's Mussolini, oh, fa the Portuguese dictatorship, no, it's not fascist, it's Salazarist. So it was, people, historians were putting aside the word, and at the same time, this made that the, the anti-fascism was also almost criminalized. Crimin crimin criminalized. Criminalized. Uh, not only the anti-fascism, but also the fights against totalitarian or authoritarian regimes. Both movements are connected. Uh, but worst of is, is that this new order kills the entire revolutionary tradition that came back from the days of the French Revolution, and uh, while promoting exclusively one political and social order. So this is a kind of uh, neoliberal order that crushes everything that promises a, a different world. And this is why, the reason why I brought the, the third image. It's an image of Sakalotos. And um, so the government of Greece was crushed by the power uh, that, that had the government, actually, this, this was taken in the moment where the discussions about the bailout was really uh, in, the, in, the, oh, in the most uh, intense moment. And uh, the government of Greece had the power of a referendum to refuse the bailout, and they didn't manage to do this, that. So this is an image full of pathos, and for me, this is an icon of defeat. I myself felt defeated when this happened. So we put so much hope into the Greeks to stand up against this neoliberal power, and they did not succeed. Uh, Alan Badiou, the French philosopher stresses uh, an important point about this victory of the globalized capitalism. He, said that, he says that the victory is not only an objective victory. Uh, it's on, not only in the domain of this objectiveness, but it's a sub subjectivity question as well. So, this is the greatest victory of capitalism, that people are convinced that there is no other way. So in this world marked by the offensive conservative revisionism, by the end of the utopias for the future, by a crisis of transmission of experience, for me it's paramount to work on several aspects of memory and to think about its uses, but not about the strong memories. I mean, the, the, the memories like, say, Enzo Traverso, the, the Italian historian, the official memories nurtured by institutions, nurtured by the states, but the underground memories, the hidden memories, the repressed memories, the forbidden memories, and so my field of action, it's these weak memories. And well, finally, talking about Trump, uh, I heard many people saying that they couldn't foresee what was coming. I didn't, <laughs> I think nobody saw this. Uh, this is unthinkable. Uh, but as Badiou also says, to say I don't understand is a defeat. 
So we cannot be prisoners by the emotions, by the negative affects. Uh, we have not only to resist, but to act. And this came what Walter Benstein said. It's not, we, we have not, uh, not confusing words with actions. We have to, we have to act. And uh, Trump says, Badiou, it's a figure of a new kind of fascism, a fascism of the democratic times. It's a kind of a democratic fascism, which is a paradox in itself. It's inside and outside of the system. But I would say that um, we live strange moments, strange democratic moments. We are in an era of the deconsolidation of democracy. It's a recent article that was written about this. So Trump is here, Marine Le Pen is around the corner, the Scandinavian uh, guys are there, uh, and all around the world, Erdogan, Duterte. So everyone should resist and create something uh, to go, well, from pathos to practice, or to be in this dialectic between pathos and practice. And we have to resist and act with whatever we have at hand. And this brings me to the last image I brought. And this is actually the reason why I brought this image. It's a photo that is exposed in an exhibition called Sulevma Uprisings. It's organized by the Uberman, and I, I went there three days ago. It's in Paris. And I brought here this image because it draws a kind of a, a gesture. It is a photo taken in 1977. It's the people from Guernica paying a tribute to a memory, to a fight, to a reproduction of Picasso's Guernica painted by the students. And for me, it's a very beautiful image. Art, memory, transmission, simplicity and complexity. So it's the raising up of a gesture. And it's a little bit like Alderlin wrote in his famous poem, Patmos, where there is danger, a rescuing element grows as well. So. Thank you so much, Sam. And thanks, and thanks for this fabulous image also. Um, I want to just move along now to hear from Natalia Brizuela, who's joined us, who flew out from Berkeley uh, on a red eye to be here, and originally from Argentina, and is um, coming to share with us some of her perspectives. Yep. Thank you. Um, so there's something that I've been thinking about for a while and teaching in many of my classes, which is, is it possible for there to be a political cinema today like there was in the 1960s and 70s um, and where Latin America played such a crucial uh, role in that articulation in the 60s and 70s and what has happened to it? So that's, you know, th th those are questions that I'm grappling with in a book I'm writing and questions that I grapple with in a number of the work that I do. And so that's why I wanted to start with a, an image of um, Glauber Rocha, the Brazilian filmmaker, right, one of these uh, kind of mystic figures from the 1960s and 70s, who, if you might have seen the film or not, in this 1970 film by the Zigavertov Collective, right, composed, among others, of uh, Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Gorin, they asked Glauber Rocha, who had already made most of his 
best known films, to impersonate political cinema. And so this woman, this pregnant European woman, comes up to him and asks him, like, oh, what's the direction to political cinema? She's like out there searching, right? She's pregnant. She's a pregnant woman. And he goes, well, over there to my right is, you know, the cinema of adventure. And over there to the left is this cinema of the third world, which is uh, marvelous, it's dangerous, it's divine. Um, and it's clearly where he's, you know, he keeps repeating like in a mantra. And so she's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna go that direction. She goes and she walks off the road for like two seconds. And then it's like, oh, okay, no, I'm not going there. Okay, so she comes back. She's like, this is too complicated. I'm gonna go the other road, right? And off she goes. And this film signals a moment of kind of the closure of those uh, film aesthetics and film movement around, you know, the belief that film, starting from the Russian Revolution to that moment, film could change the world. Film had a place to play in changing the world. So that's kind of what I keep asking um, in today's world, right? Um, so along, I just wanted to share with you a couple of the things that I've been thinking about in the Latin American and um, also Luso-Hispanic context, because that's the field that I work on. I mean, if I were to say one filmmaker one of maybe two or three filmmakers that you must watch their films, it is Susana's films. Uh, you must watch her films because there is so much to learn and the strategies she, had, she has offered us. Um, but I, I wanted to, I had, as I was looking over things that have come out of Latin America recently, I, I realized that there were two or three terms that kept, um, emerging, and one was life, the, the search for life, for survival, to go back to what Walter was saying at the beginning, strategies for the survival of life in today's world, um, something that uh, I know in the US is now becoming a, a pressing issue, but in places like Latin America, we've been thinking about that for a very long time, um, <laughs> um, or in places like Portugal or Spain, right? This is what the 20th century has been like for us on almost a daily basis. So along with life, there was this other term, which is live, live streaming, which has become, I mean, it's crazy, right? A, a life, live, and the collective, right? As three strategies and concepts and movements that keep coming up in a lot of media and film practices that I think are the most interesting today. Um, when I say live, I, I'm thinking particularly of work, like for example, the, there's a Brazilian independent media collective that has emerged in, in the last five years, most prominently in 2013, with the massive protests uh, at that moment around the, uh, against the rise of the fair, uh, public transportation fair in Sao Paulo. Um, and that collect, it's a collective and it's called Ninja Media. And I really urge you to look it up. They emerge, they're basically uh, image-based. They, they live stream, they don't have a, a platform. They tweet, they Facebook, um, they YouTube, and everything is live streamed. And that changed, it started in 2011 really, and that changed radically um, in, 
a place like Brazil, which is similar to a place, say, like Mexico, where the media conglomerates are a, the most powerful industries in the world, in those countries owned by the richest people in those countries that also control politics, economics, cultural life. And so these co this collective emerged um, as, as an alternative, uh, and at any given moment uh, to today, they have 250,000 viewers on, hooked on all the time, and that's amazing. And the stress there is about the, the live streaming, right? And what they are live streaming is the life of people who have never had the right or the possibility of entering into the field of representation. So there's also, you know, so there's a, on the one hand that, that a relationship between live and life. Um, there is, I also kept thinking of the work of an, a multimedia artist like Nuno Ramos, who very recently a live streamed for 24 hours on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, the reading of the hundred, the names of the 111 prisoners that were murdered in 1992 in what is considered the biggest prison massacre uh, in Brazil uh, and in Latin America, and uh, Temer's government had just pardoned uh, all the guards, the 74 guards who had killed these 111 inmates, right? And so he live streamed just this non-stop reading by 24 different people, the names of, of, of these dead, kind of bringing them back, right? Um, so with this question of live streaming, I think the, the thing is that they go viral. And so to think of viral as a strategy um, today for life, right? Where, you know, viral is not no longer a, a virus that poisons life, but a virus that poisons media and that might be our only way of survival. And I think that in this country there is still a need for collectives of that kind. Um, there has been a rising interest in alternative media, but it hasn't really kind of taken on. And alongside this use of like, you know, media practices in Latin America, uh, there's a part of me that really wants to still feel that film as a medium, as that medium that we are used to seeing uh, on the screen in a darkened room has the power to do something to us in this tradition of a kind of high modernist aesthetic, right? Um, and that, that might be the part that I'm still grappling with, that I'm not sure, that I, maybe I'm wishing for, right? That I think the 1960s and 70s attempted, you know, kind of in, in the genealogy, again, that starts with, you know, Vertov and Eisenstein and the Russian Revolution and the thinking of film as changing consciousness. Um, but along those lines, I think that maybe one of the most important things to recuperate right now are works that help us deal with history in this age of amnesia, as Susanna was saying, right? And in that line, there are, I think, three filmmakers that are doing, in my opinion, my humble opinion from this part of the world that I know a little about is these three filmmakers, one of them is Susanna, um, another one is another Portuguese filmmaker called uh, Pedro Costa. Um, and 
this film of his, Tarrafal, one of his five or six films. This is a very short film. Um, he has transformed the means of production. He works with the people that act in his films. He, they work with almost no money. Uh, they are people that used to live in a very uh, poor neighborhood of Lisbon that has now been uh, destroyed. And this particular film, Tarrafal, is about a, a wave of deportation that happened in uh, Portugal in 2006, seven, and eight, right? Where people were just kind of like being told, mainly people of African descent, like go back home. But these are people that had been born in, in Portugal. Um, and these are the films that uh, he has started making with them since 2002. So I think that because of his interest in colonialism, um, and in questions of immigration and race, he might be someone that we can learn from a lot. And the last person, and that's just what I'm going to stop with, is uh, the last, is Pasencina, uh, who's a, a filmmaker from, oh no, yeah, it's okay, from, I didn't have, okay, from Pasencina. <laughs> um, you're gonna be able to watch her films at MoMA in February. They're gonna screen her films um, from Paraguay. Uh, she, Paraguay shares uncanny similarities with Portugal, uh, not a 48-year dictatorship, but a 35-year-long dictatorship. Um, and much like uh, Susana, she has been using film in a, in a way to kind of uh, archive the lives of people that uh, have fallen into the oblivion during the long 20th century history of fascism. Thank you, thank you so much. We're switching out panelists here. They'll be back up here again to talk all together. But in the meantime, um, the, we started out with panelists talking about the past um, and a little bit about the present and now about the present and a little bit about the future. And so everybody else come on up here. And I'm just gonna say while they're settling in, um, I want to say there's a few seats here if anyone's tired of being on the stairs. Uh, there's some spaces. And also to say that I just read that uh, Gael Garcia Bernal, the actor, was just giving a talk and he said, well, Trump has the nuclear codes, but we have the cameras. And I thought, mm, okay, maybe. So we're, we're here to see um, what, what, what other ways we can think about this and see if we can get a little bit further than that. So, um, welcome to our brave next batch of panelists. I'm really thrilled with how this evening's going and hope you are. Um, I'm gonna start um, stage left, my right, uh, with Michael Boyce Gillespie, who's going to speak to us uh, from his um, CUNY perch, um, uh, looking at um, the films that he thinks we ought to be paying attention to right now. Michael, do you have a, a mic over there? Yes. Okay. 10 minutes and I'll start timing for you. <laughs> no pressure, Ruby. At the oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you everyone for coming out. And so I'll just get into it, uh, thinking definitely about this issue of the present and thinking through the lens of my own scholarship. So Fordism and the wages of capitalism that was the plan. A lecture on Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times the week after the election. <laughs> keep it simple, 
keep it clear, keep it moving. But the more I tried to talk about labor, comedy, and reification, the more my heart went elsewhere. So I stopped and played the final scene from Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite. It's still a riveting scene to watch, but I really didn't need to watch it to confirm my commitment to the fight ahead. In that moment in the classroom, I needed something that was equivalent to my post-election feelings. I needed a cinematic moment that brutally demonstrated what happens when the joke isn't funny anymore. I would like to discuss briefly the ways that the idea of black film has consequentially informed my sense of our moment and the resistant capacities that I argue for in the terms of film blackness. In other words, I would like to briefly map out ways that blackness is rendered not as truth or reflection of a social category, but as a critical art. Now more than ever, film blackness must be appreciated as a speculative staging of black visual and expressive culture, and the place of at times condescending readings of black film equals black people. In this precise moment, in the shadows of the fourth reconstruction to come, I don't want to hear about how cinema will change the world. I adore cinema, but I've never trusted it in those terms. What I want is a cinema that incites and disrupts, while also responsive to some kind of necessities of a politics of pleasure. What I want is a cinema devoted to the multitudes, intimacies, and intricacies of art, history, and culture. What I want is a cinema of affective encounters that might compel us to unlearn and do the work of resistance. So can we go to the next image? So one of those films for me that is doing this work, a film that I keep cycling back to, is Arthur Jaffa's film, Dreams Are Colder Than Death. And I would, <laughs> and I would, you def, I would, <laughs> amen. Uh, <laughs> and I can't emphasize enough how important it is that you go uptown to Gavin Brown Enterprises and see Love is the Message, The Message is Death. But for right now, let me talk a little bit about Arthur Jaffa's Dreams Are Colder Than Death. It is a film which richly demonstrates cinema's capacity to enact blackness, particularly blackness with regards to its magnitude and its potential. It's an experimental documentary that focuses on the meaning of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech 50 years later, and whether the goals and ambitions of the civil rights movement have been achieved. The film asks, does the dream live on? And if so, what has changed? It is a visual historiography of black thought, as the film sees with a productively agnostic impression of the idea of black history in progressive terms by considering the perception and conception of history in exquisitely visual and mosaic terms. Geographically speaking, the film is structured across the landscapes of Harlem, Brooklyn, Hotlanta, Mississippi, and Los Angeles. Its assembly of uncommon folk and specialists includes Horton Spillers, Fred Moten, Kara Walker, Charles Burnett, Melvin Gibbs, Sadia Hartman, Flying Lotus, Nicole Fleetwood, 
Kathleen Cleaver, and Wengeshi Mutu. Together, this group of visual artists, revolutionaries, musicians, academics, filmmakers, and activists, and everyday citizens offer a kind of critical resistance to their own philosophical practices around black expressivity. But I want to briefly focus on a part of Fred Moten's appearance. In the final section of the film, his voice is paired with footage of him walking. And that is coupled with footage from a Trayvon Martin rally in Los Angeles. The slow motion movement of a mass protest devoted to a black boy coated by a hoodie, murdered and left to die in the rain with no shelter from the storm, becomes punctuated by Moton's commentary that includes the following. Quote, when you say that black people are just an effect of slavery, you raise the question, can black people be loved? Not desired, not wanted, not acquired, not lusted after. Can black people be loved? Can blackness be loved? So what I am saying is that I believe there is such a thing as blackness, and how it operates is that it is not an effect of horror. It survives horror and terror, but it is not an effect of these things. So, I, so it can be loved, and it has to be loved, and it should be defended." End quote. It is Moton's suggestion that blackness is always already an act of faith, which I still cycle through. As the film pivots away from this kind of narrative interrupted recycling of a selectively remembered sense of Dr. King's vision to something more dialogical, something around an issue of black praxis and freedom dreams. Can blackness be loved? Moton's question, an exquisite explanation for dreams are colder than death, resounds as a rhetorical call, a devotional affirmation, and an act of revolutionary hope. It is in these dynamic times, times that every morning when I sit on the subway train and I see, see something, say something, and realize it does not apply to hate crimes, that I have to constantly ask myself, can blackness be loved? Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks a lot for that. Um, Angela Zito is up next, who I especially wanted to hear from because of her work with Chinese independent documentary after the Tiananmen Square massacre, the work she's been doing looking at that. Angela. Thank you, Ruby. Um, at one time in a galaxy far, far away, uh, the authoritarian nightmare of communist China seemed far, far away. But now we are all growing closer. And so let us learn. Let us learn from the Chinese reaction to Tiananmen. Let us learn from their digital turn. And let us learn about archiving from them. In the fall of 1978, we people in the United States who study China have been given the advance word that come January, diplomatic relations would resume. By the following August of 1979, I found myself on a train north from Hong Kong starting a three-year stay for dissertation research in Beijing. I came with a camera, an Olympus OM-1, 35-millimeter SLR. You know who you are out there. And a manual brother typewriter. Both of these examples of advanced communications technology had to be registered at the border, and I would be asked to produce the paperwork along with the objects when I departed for home, lest I had left behind any of this possibly disruptive equipment in Chinese hands. Oh, the irony. 
Now this place that I have repeatedly visited and lived for more than 30 years builds a fair amount of the digital tech that litters everyone's landscape. Now as usual, it does come down to us and our tools, tools which extend our eyes, our ears, and allow us to touch the world are important, but tools like cameras or the internet are not everything to be sure they are resources and even weapons in the struggle between people with vastly different senses of the world, and I don't mean Americans and Chinese here, <laughs> um, but the sense of the world matters more than the tools. Forward 10 years to Tiananmen in 1989, I watched it on American television weeping on that day. It is fair to say the world watched the limits of protest when the army arrives and opens fire. Certainly China lives with the draconian aftermath. There is no right of free public gathering in China pretty much at all these days. The aftermath of the terror of those Beijing nights had immediate results for filmmakers. They actually became so. On the one hand, I think people got depressed and developed a kind of nothing-to-lose attitude which led to a drift out of their careers in broadcast newsrooms by the trained folks who knew how to use cameras. Ten years in from my first 1979 entry in 1989, few had access to moving image cameras except those professionals. These excursions of escape from newsrooms with borrowed equipment uh, opened the independent documentary movement. And post-Tenement filmmakers fanned out now in the 90s and armed themselves with smaller cameras and eventually DV. We must understand that these tools were happily taken up because they helped makers to pursue the things they had already wanted to see. All sorts of subjects to shoot in the territory beyond the state's gaze, the marginalized, the neglected, the overlooked, the willfully ignored, or the uncategorizable. On a, can I have the slide of the old woman, please? Yeah. Um, uh, a terribly intimate scale, this is a still from Starving Village, uh, the filmmaker Zhou Xiaoping's dying grandmother. Uh, they refused uh, to film within the state system of censorship and so had no distribution. They have often been criticized by Chinese with developed senses of national dignity for showing only misery and corruption, for airing national dirty laundry and pandering to foreign voyeuristic curiosity in film festivals. Yet their work has forever enlarged the map of social life in China, making visible and available for archiving people's lives heretofore neglected or prettified by mainstream media. So I mentioned archiving, and this brings up another and maybe even more important result of Tiananmen, the slowly dawning sense in China that after June 4th, the state would mount campaigns to wipe the memories of the killings. In fact, people began to realize a good deal of history was being forgotten. For as we know, there is no trauma that is not forgotten in the sense of already received and under process. And the real issue is remembering, giving new life in the bodies of the living. Memories may be past, but remembering is always an act in the present. In China, lost memory is profoundly generational, creating great gaps where affection and empathy can disappear. The trauma of the Great Famine, caused by bad policy, but blamed on the Russians in 1958 and 1960 belongs to dying grandparents. The Cultural Revolution, 1966 to 76, belongs to them, but also to their children, the parents, people too young to recall the terrible famine, but maybe people of sort of boomer age in an American terms. And today, what trauma does today's generation face? Surely nothing of this magnitude, but some of their elders worry that they will die of consumption, capitalist consumption, and die in ignorance. The filmmaker Hu Jie is dedicated to the work of history and archiving. 
He started his own life deeply embedded in state apparatuses, born in 1958 in Nanjing. He graduated from the Art College for the People's Liberation Army in oil painting. He was in the army for 15 years. In 1992, he was given a Super 8 camera by a Japanese friend. I'm <laughs> still smuggling in the technology. And began bumming around the country, filming, turning to DV when he could. He did a stint with the state Xinhua News Agency as a reporter, but he was soon asked to leave. Who is legendary for being a brilliant filmmaker of tenacity who stays low to the ground, a single-minded maker well-known to the local police? His first two films, Searching for the Soul of Lin Zhao and Though I Am Gone, are distributed in the United States, which is very rare for this kind of film, uh, uh, by Icarus and Degenerate, so I, it's one of the reasons I really wanted to mention them today. Uh, Lin Zhao is about a now famous young woman writist who was imprisoned and later executed inside jail for refusing re-education. It is a terrible story that Hu brings to light through her prison writing, done in her own blood using hairpins and later recopied by her with a pen, and through interviews with people who knew her and were still alive in the 90s. Though I am gone, if I could have, yes, there it is, right, um, takes up the trauma of the Cultural Revolution in this 60-minute film, who receives the testimony in voice and film and bloody objects stored in a suitcase of Wang Jingyao. This is Wang. Wang was a photographer and carefully and obsessively documented the death by beating of his wife, Bian Zhongyun, the vice principal of a very prestigious secondary school in Beijing. She was murdered by her own students, becoming one of the first victims of the revolutionary violence that would engulf the entire nation. And so he is here documenting in this film the archivist uh, using his photos. Could I have the next slide? The, yeah, the, the, yes, that's it. This is a photo by Wang Jingyao of his children viewing the dead body of their mother. Some final thoughts. The Chinese state, no state, after the digital turn, can ever control production in the age of video and non-linear kitchen sink editing of media. This is the much vaunted and not insignificant empowerment of the digital. I will quote Hu Jia on this. I think from a foreigner's point of view, it would be very sad if you made a film that could not be seen by your audience. But for me, it's normal. Because after all, they don't allow you to make these films. The public media never makes or broadcasts these kinds of films. That is the reality I face. So the most important thing for me is to make the film, and to make a good film. And then the word will spread. This is the standard I set for myself. I don't have a way to distribute the films, so the only channel I have is to make a really good film. If it's good enough, the word will spread. If the film does not find an audience, I do not complain that it is banned. I criticize myself for not going doing a good enough job. Hujia here heroically takes a lot upon himself not something most of us would do. And it is a terrible call to action, however. Indeed, China, China has tightened even further its laws just very recently concerning distribution and uh, exhibition. Every time we have shown these films at NYU at the Real China Film Biennial that I do there with a colleague, someone in the audience stands up and asks, but can people in China see these films? Is there any point in making them if Chinese audiences cannot see them? Again, I will give you Hu Jie. There is. Because if you don't go record it, these people will die, and no one will know their stories. No one will ever know their stories. The government definitely won't tell their stories. 
The other point is that during this bitter era, this violent era, this most terrifying era, people still tried to reflect on what was happening. They weren't afraid to die. They died in secret. And we of succeeding generations don't know what heroes they were. I think it's a matter of morality. They died for us. If we don't know this, it is a tragedy. And when I look out at my audiences who inevitably ask this question, I really want to scream, this is not an ad, and the measure of media is not always how many people will view it in the shortest time frame, or how many clicks. Now the wonderful thing about Hujia's work is that the making of it creates its own network of enlivened engagement. The people he interviews, the ones who provide him with documents, the friends who encourage, the friends who archive for him, the other filmmakers with whom he collaborates. All of these are moments of necessary liveness. Like many things, a film is only sometimes an object. It strains to become a thing that can exist, to be circulated, and not decay with undue speed. But it is also much more. It is a pause in an ongoing and ensemble process of making of social production that takes a certain materialized form that can be heard and seen, portably carried, or email. An archive for the future that I think we must believe exists already in ourselves, as many, many people in China have already shown. Thank you. That's it for part one of our panel, Film and Media in a Time of Repression. We'll be posting part two next week. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>